Good evening, listener, and welcome to Mr. Spike's Bedtime Stories. I do hope you are sitting comfortably. You are? Very good. Then I shall begin tonight's tale. The Demoiselle Dix by Robert Chambers Mais je crois que je suis descendu en puits ténébreux, en quel dissoit Heraclitus estre vérité cachée. There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not, the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Chapter 1 The utter desolation of the scene began to have its effect. I sat down to face the situation, and, if possible, recall to mind some landmark which might aid me in extricating myself from my present position. If I could only find the ocean again, all would be clear, for I knew one could see the island of Gois from the cliffs. I laid down my gun, and kneeling behind a rock lighted a pipe. Then I looked at my watch. It was nearly four o'clock. I might have wandered far from Kersalek since daybreak. Standing the day before on the cliffs below Kersalek with Goulevin, looking out over the sombre moors among which I had now lost my way, these downs had appeared to me level as a meadow, stretching to the horizon, and although I knew how deceptive is distance, I could not realise that what from Kerselec seemed to be mere grassy hollows were great valleys covered with gorse and heather, and what looked like scattered boulders were in reality enormous cliffs of granite. "'It's a bad place for a stranger,' old Goulevin has said. "'You'd better take a guide.' And I had replied, "'I shall not lose myself.' Now I knew that I had lost myself as I sat there smoking with the sea wind blowing in my face. On every side stretched the moorland, covered with flowering gorse and heath and granite boulders. There was not a tree in sight, much less a house. After a while I picked up the gun, and turning my back on the sun, tramped on again. There was little use in following any of the brawling streams which every now and then crossed my path, for instead of flowing into the sea, they ran inland to reedy pools in the hollows of the moors. I had followed several, but they all led me to swamps or silent little ponds from which the snipe rose peeping and wheeled away in an ecstasy of fright. I began to feel fatigued, and the gun galled my shoulder in spite of the double pads. The sun sank lower and lower, shining level across yellow gorse and the moorland pools. As I walked, my own gigantic shadow led me on, seeming to lengthen at every step. The gorse scraped against my leggings, crackled beneath my feet, showering the brown earth with blossoms, and the brake bowed and billowed along my path. From tufts of heath, rabbits scurried away through the bracken, and among the swamp grass I heard the wild duck's drowsy quack. Once a fox stole across my path, and again, as I stooped to drink at a hurrying rill, a heron flapped heavily from the reeds beside me. I turned to look at the sun. It seemed to touch the edges of the plain. When at last I decided that it was useless to go on, and that I must make up my mind to spend at least one night on the moors, I threw myself down thoroughly fagged out. 
The evening sunlight slanted warm across my body, but the sea winds began to rise, and I felt a chill strike through me from my wet shooting boots. High overhead, gulls were wheeling and tossing like bits of white paper. From some distant marsh, a solitary curlew called. Little by little, the sun sank into the plain, and the zenith flushed with the afterglow. I watched the sky change from palest gold to pink, and then to smouldering fire. Clouds of midges danced above me, and high in the calm air a bat dipped and soared. My eyelids began to droop. Then, as I shook off the drowsiness, a sudden crash among the bracken roused me. I raised my eyes. A great bird hung quivering in the air above my face. For an instant I stared, incapable of motion. Then something leaped past me in the ferns, and the bird rose, wheeled, and pitched headlong into the brake. I was on my feet in an instant, peering through the gorse. There came the sound of a struggle from a bunch of heather close by, and then all was quiet. I stepped forward, my gun poised, but when I came to the heather the gun fell under my arm again, and I stood motionless in silent astonishment. A dead hare lay on the ground, and on the hare stood a magnificent falcon, one talon buried in the creature's neck, the other planted firmly on its limp flank. But what astonished me was not the mere sight of a falcon sitting upon its prey, I had seen that more than once. It was that the falcon was fitted with a sort of leash about both talons, and from the leash hung a round bit of metal like a sleigh-bell. The bird turned its fierce yellow eyes on me, then stooped and struck its curved beak into the quarry. At the same instant hurried steps sounded among the heather, and a girl sprang into the covert in front. Without a glance at me, she walked up to the falcon, and passing her gloved hand under its breast, raised it from the quarry. Then she deftly slipped a small hood under the bird's head, and holding it out on her gauntlet, stooped and picked up the hair. She passed a cord about the animal's legs, and fastened the end of the thong to her girdle. Then she started to retrace her steps through the covert. As she passed me, I raised my cap, and she acknowledged my presence with a scarcely perceptible inclination. I had been so astonished, so lost in admiration of the scene before my eyes, that it had not occurred to me that here was my salvation. But as she moved away, I recollected that unless I wanted to sleep on a windy moor that night, I had better recover my speech without delay. At my first word she hesitated and as I stepped before her I thought a look of fear came into her beautiful eyes. But, as I humbly explained my unpleasant plight, her face flushed, and she looked at me in wonder. "'Surely you do not come from Kerselec,' she repeated. Her sweet voice had no trace of the Breton accent, nor of any accent which I knew, and yet there was something in it I seemed to have heard before, something quaint and indefinable.' like the theme of an old song. I explained that I was an American, unacquainted with Finisterre, shooting there for my own amusement. "'An American,' she repeated in the same quaint musical tones. "'I have never before seen an American.' For a moment she stood silent. Then, looking at me, she said, "'If you should walk all night, you could not reach Keselec now, even if you had a guide.' This was pleasant news. But, I began, 
If I could only find a peasant's hut where I might get something to eat and shelter. The falcon on her wrist fluttered and shook its head. The girl smoothed its glossy back and glanced at me. Look around, she said gently. Can you see the end of these moors? Look north, south, east, west. Can you see anything but moorland and bracken? No, I said. The moor is wild and desolate. It is easy to enter, but sometimes they who enter never leave it. There are no peasants' huts here. Well, I said, if you will tell me in which direction Kurselek lies, tomorrow it will take me no longer to go back than it has to come. She looked at me again with an expression almost like pity. Ah, she said, to come is easy and takes hours. To go is different and may take centuries. I stared at her in amazement, but decided that I had misunderstood her. Then, before I had time to speak, she drew a whistle from her belt and sounded it. Sit down and rest, she said to me. You have come a long distance and are tired. She gathered up her pleated skirts and, motioning me to follow, picked her dainty way through the gorse to a flat rock among the ferns. They will be here directly, she said, and taking a seat at one end of the rock invited me to sit down on the other edge. The afterglow was beginning to fade in the sky, and a single star twinkled faintly through the rosy haze. A long, wavering triangle of waterfowl drifted southward over our heads, and from the swamps around plover were calling. They are very beautiful, these moors, she said quietly. "'Beautiful, but cruel to strangers,' I answered. "'Beautiful and cruel,' she repeated dreamily. "'Beautiful and cruel.' "'Like a woman,' I said stupidly. "'Oh!' she cried with a little catch in her breath and looked at me. Her dark eyes met mine, and I thought she seemed angry or frightened. "'Like a woman,' she repeated under her breath. How cruel to say so. Then, after a pause, as though speaking aloud to herself, how cruel for him to say that. I don't know what sort of an apology I offered for my inane, though harmless, speech, but I know that she seemed so troubled about it that I began to think I had said something very dreadful without knowing it, and remembered with horror the pitfalls and snares which the French language sets for foreigners. While I was trying to imagine what I might have said, a sound of voices came across the moor, and the girl rose to her feet. No, she said, with a trace of a smile on her pale face. I will not accept your apologies, monsieur, but I must prove you wrong, and that shall be my revenge. Look, here come Hastur and Raoul. Two men loomed up in the twilight. One had a sack across his shoulders, and the other carried a hoop before him as a waiter carries a tray. The hoop was fastened with straps to his shoulders, and around the edge of the circlet sat three hooded falcons fitted with tinkling bells. The girl stepped up to the falconer, and with a quick turn of her wrist transferred her falcon to the hoop, where it quickly sidled off and nestled among its mates, who shook their hooded heads and ruffled their feathers till the bell jesses tinkled again. The other man stepped forward, and bowing respectfully, took up the hare and dropped it into the game-sack. "'These are my piqueurs,' said the girl, turning to me with a gentle dignity. 
Raoul is a good fauconnier, and I shall some day make him grand veneur. Hastor is incomparable. The two silent men saluted me respectfully. Did I not tell you, monsieur, that I should prove you wrong? She continued. This, then, is my revenge, that you do me the courtesy of accepting food and shelter at my own house. Before I could answer, she spoke to the falconers, who started instantly across the heath, and with a gracious gesture to me she followed. I don't know whether I made her understand how profoundly grateful I felt, but she seemed pleased to listen as we walked over the dewy heather. "'Are you not very tired?' she asked. I had clean forgotten my fatigue in her presence, and I told her so. "'Don't you think your gallantry is a little old-fashioned?' she said. And when I looked confused and humbled, she added quietly, "'Oh, I like it. I like everything old-fashioned, and it is delightful to hear you say such pretty things.' The moorland around us was very still now under its ghostly sheets of mist. The plover had ceased their calling. The crickets and all the little creatures of the fields were silent as we passed, yet it seemed to me as if I could hear them beginning again far behind us. Well in advance the two falconers strode across the heather, and the faint jingling of the hawk's bells came to our ears in distant murmuring chimes. Suddenly a splendid hound dashed out of the mist in front, followed by another and another, until half a dozen or more were bounding and leaping around the girl beside me. She caressed and quieted them with her gloved hand, speaking to them in quaint terms which I remember to have seen in old French manuscripts. Then the falcons on the circlet borne by the falconer ahead began to beat their wings and scream, and from somewhere out of sight the notes of a hunting horn floated across the moor. The hounds sprang away before us and vanished in the twilight, the falcons flapped and squealed upon their perch, and the girl, taking up the song of the horn, began to hum. Clear and mellow her voice sounded in the night air. Chasseur, chasseur, chassez encore, quittez Rosette et jeune Tonton, 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 ou pour abattre des lourds, que les amours soient de planton, tonton, tonton, tonton. As I listened to her lovely voice, a grey mass, which rapidly grew more distinct, loomed up in front and the horn rang out joyously through the tumult of the hounds and falcons. A torch glimmered at a gate, a light streamed through an opening door, and we stepped upon a wooden bridge which trembled under our feet and rose creaking and straining behind us as we passed over the moat and into a small stone court walled on every side. From an open doorway a man came and, bending in salutation, presented a cup to the girl beside me. She took the cup and touched it with her lips, then, lowering it, turned to me and said in a low voice, "'I bid you welcome.' At that moment one of the falconers came with another cup, but before handing it to me presented it to the girl, who tasted it. The falconer made a gesture to receive it, but she hesitated a moment, and then, stepping forward, offered me the cup with her own hands. I felt this to be an act of extraordinary graciousness. 
but hardly knew what was expected of me, and did not raise it to my lips at once. The girl flushed crimson. I saw that I must act quickly. Mademoiselle, I faltered, a stranger whom you have saved from dangers he may never realize empties this cup to the gentlest and loveliest hostess of France. In his name, she murmured, crossing herself as I drained the cup. Then, stepping into the doorway, she turned to me with a pretty gesture, and taking my hand in hers, led me into the house, saying again and again, You are very welcome, indeed you are welcome, to the Chateau d'Isse.